Good morning. I have to add my welcome to uh, those who are new here today. We really, or you know, uh, this year, we're really pleased to have you as part of the community and the congregation. And so, uh, let me welcome you as well. My name is Philip. I teach New Testament. Um, I grew up in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, and when I was uh, uh, in school. Uh, the most popular television show of that time was about growing up in the 1950s in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Happy Days. When my kids reached that same age, um, the popular show that launched a, a number of careers was called That 70s Show, which was another show about growing up in Wisconsin in a previous generation. And so, uh, to me, it seemed as though there was this um, almost a golden age that um, uh, I missed out on the 1950s in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And to my kids, they look back for, for some bizarre reason to when I grew up as some golden age. You know, Woody Allen made a movie about this. Uh, he refers to the, the golden age fallacy in his movie, uh, Midnight in Paris, where everybody thinks the era just before theirs was the golden age, the greatest time to be alive. But in Israel's case, I think we can say that the past really was better. They were waiting for God to dwell amongst them in the way that he had when David and Solomon and people like that were present amongst them, but even more, God was present amongst them. So they're waiting for the kingdom that would stretch into eternity and bring heaven to earth. So their hope looked backward and forward. And one of the main schools of thought in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, uh, taught that if everyone got their life sorted out, if they all live the right way, well, then God might come back and live amongst us. So they wanted everybody to live according to the strictest rules, more or less like the priests. And so that's a conversation about the kingdom that God will one day establish amongst them. And in the midst of that, Luke is teaching us something about the kingdom. And he's trying to, I think, answer two really important questions. The first one is, how do you get in? And the second is, well, who is getting in? And that's what Jesus addresses in the material uh, of this chapter. Now, before we look at these particular verses, we should, I think, zoom out just for a moment to see that already in chapter 9, verse 51, we're told, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So we know where he's going, and of course we know what's going to happen when he gets there. It's about death and resurrection and ascension. All these things are on the horizon. And since that point, since Luke 9, 51, we have been following with Jesus on this journey. And then we get to this chapter as we zoom in just a little bit. Uh, we can see that Jesus talked about a bad tree being uprooted, which I take to be a metaphor for Israel. And then he is uh, uh, in the business of humiliating the religious leaders in the synagogue in this chapter. And then finally in the material just before what we're going to look at today, he gives two parables that say, I think, that the kingdom doesn't look all that impressive. So at that point, we meet up with Jesus, going through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And the question is put to him, hang on a second, the kingdom's not going to be that impressive? Are only a few people going to be saved? And the first thing he says then is, the door is closing. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. 
So the first thing he says in answer is that the door is closing. It's a narrow door, and it's a closing door. Imagine that you have a ticket to the SCG, the Sydney Cricket Ground, and everyone has to go, everyone has to go through the same door. So you've got a massive crowd of people, and they all have to go through the same door. And for some peculiar reason that none of us understand, they've selected a door that isn't even a full-size door. What would it mean for you to make every effort to get through that door? Now, for some of you, it would mean pushing people aside to get to the front. That isn't exactly what Jesus means here. It's a metaphor for a space that I think more or less conforms to who you are. And it raises the question, what are you going to bring with you? If you try to carry your grand piano on, the, on your back, you will not fit through that door. If you try to bring your car in there with you, you will not fit through that door. I think that's why they say you can't take it with you. It's just the stripped down, unadorned version of who you are. So your pride, your goodness, your loyalty to the Anglican church or to missions, none of these things are going to fit through that door. Even more, it's a closing door. So it's a narrow door, but it's a closing door. Jesus says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, well, that's an ominous note, isn't it? Have you ever been confronted with a closing door? One time we were flying home to go to my wife's wedding. <laughs> my wife's brother's wedding. And the flight from Sydney had been delayed, and so we landed just a bit late in San Francisco. And by the time we cleared customs, we did all that running through the airport, dragging luggage. We got to the, the terminal, and we looked at a closing door. And when you see that door closing, and even worse, if you saw a plane taken off, and for, in our experience, it was pretty much the same thing, the plane was taken off, they're not going to call that plane back. Okay, once that door is closed, you're out. And Jesus wants them to understand that this is a flight that has taken off for some of them. It's not going to turn around and come back for you. If you miss it, you better have other arrangements. But there are no other arrangements. Another image Jesus uses in this chapter, back in verses 6 to 9, is of a fig tree being chopped down. The gardener is very, very patient, but there are limits to the patience. And the door is closing. So I guess um, for me, this raises a couple questions. Can I cope? Can you cope with the thought that Jesus is the only way? The door needs to be entered. The terms are being set out. Jesus himself tells us that the gate is narrow. The way is hard. There's only a few who find it. He says, I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the gate. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way there. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is an unpopular doctrine. It's an unpopular doctrine even in most churches. A survey in the UK shows that 50%, sorry, less than 50% of the clergy in the UK believe that Jesus is the only way a person can be saved. Secondly, can I cope with the thought that few will go to heaven? 
Our world th seems to think that pretty much everyone will get in, including those who have set their, heights, uh, their sights on a future kingdom and those who are busy trying to create heaven on earth by addressing social problems. Uh, maybe not the mass murderers and the sexual predators. This is where you play the Hitler card. Maybe there are some people who won't get in, but pretty much everyone else will be all right in the end. I remember once reading an obituary. It was of a young man who was a drug dealer who had been shot and killed in a gunfight and the obituary used the phrase, he is now safe in the arms of Jesus. Now, I don't know enough about this man to say he's not, but I do know enough to say that that sounds really unlikely. Safe in the arms of Jesus. This is the hope of our world. It'll be all right in the end. God is love and so is Jesus, so we don't really have too much to worry about. But this is not what Jesus says. He says, strive to enter. Strive to enter. The door is closing. The way is narrow. There's only one way. Strive to enter. Entry here is based on a wholehearted commitment rather than casual acquaintance. Now, we're talking about people who shared meals with Jesus, who listened to his teaching. Sounds like us, you might say. But Jesus rejects them. Verses 25 and 27, twice Jesus says, I don't know who, you, I don't know where you've come from. They're saying, look, we were caught up in your life. We ate and drank. You taught us in your streets. Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. He rejects their background. He rejects their history. And so he doesn't recognize them in any personal, relational way at all. Luke talks regularly about those who receive Jesus. Mary and Martha receive Jesus. Uh, Luke writes in Acts that the Gentiles received the message of Jesus, and it points to a faith-based commitment to him. If we receive Jesus, that is, if we enter into a relationship with him, well, then he receives us. And this defines the exclusivity of the gospel. How can we expect a place in the kingly rule of Jesus if we don't receive him on his terms? Verse 25, suddenly... Uh, Jesus is recognized for who he is. You will stand outside. You'll be there. You'll be peering in, knocking and pleading and saying, Sir, open the door for us. I think this is a moment of recognition, an eschatological moment of recognition where everyone will believe, everyone will acknowledge, but not all will be allowed in. They'll plead for entry, but it will be too late. So there's an urgency to what we're talking about. Uh, if there are no unbelievers on that day, if everybody will be, be serious about God on that day, doesn't mean they're getting in. There's no negotiation here. There's no bargaining. There's no buying. The decision is final. So we see that Jesus doesn't treat this as a philosophical question. Will only a few be saved? Jesus doesn't treat that as a theological debate. He uses the opportunity instead to urge his hearers to respond to the gospel before it is too late. The second thing Jesus says in answer to that question, will only, be a few, will only a few be saved, is that the feast is exclusive. There is an exclusive feast on view, and there will be weeping there, a gnashing of teeth, when you, have you noticed how it's when you, when you, um, he's talking directly to these uh, religious people and saying, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. 
Is that how you preach to your congregation? You will be thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. It's an exclusive feast and it's an answer to this question about salvation. Elsewhere, he speaks of the exclusion in terms of hell. So I wonder what is your view of such things. Jesus teaches that people will want to get in. They'll be begging to get in, but they will not be getting in. Verse 29, the kingdom is global, but it's exclusive. Again, let me say, people will want to get in, but will be excluded. They will not want the place assigned to them, which elsewhere Jesus calls hell and punishment. And hell is a created place. And there is no place in all of creation where God can't be found. He is everywhere. So hell isn't merely a place where God isn't. It's a place where God is present and active and where he judges people. Um, I wonder if some of us think that hell is locked from the inside. Have you heard that expression? Uh, I think we all have. People say that hell is locked from the inside. That's not the picture that Jesus is giving us. Some people will say that because it's locked from the inside that only people who want to be there will actually be there. And Jesus is saying, you'll be begging to get out. But it will be too late because the door is closing. He's speaking directly to people who think they are right with God. Then as now, some will think that because they're a good person, they're right with God. Others will think that because they participate in church life, they're right with God. Some in Jesus' audience will have committed their entire being to make God favor them, to, to making him happy, but the door will be closed to them. But I don't want us to get the impression that everything Jesus is saying here is negative. First of all, it's a feast. How bad can that be? In Revelation, it's presented as a wedding feast, a joy-filled occasion. And secondly, it reverses the order of this life. Did you notice that? There are people who have much, not because they deserve it, but just because they do. And there are people who have very little, not because they deserve it, but just because they do. And Jesus says that the tables will be turned. The point isn't that rich people can't be saved, although Jesus does address that elsewhere. The point is that there are people who have lived privileged lives with Jesus in their midst, and they haven't responded appropriately to him. And at that point, I have to look at myself and recognize the extraordinary privilege that I live with. And maybe you too, to be in this place at this time. The extraordinary privilege it is to hear Jesus, to know Jesus. Have we responded appropriately in faith? The third thing that Jesus says in answer to that question is that the city is murderous. Have you noticed how it goes from a door, widens out to a feast, and now it widens, it gets bigger still further to talk about a city? Some Pharisees come up, and they're the best of the religious crowd, and they say to Jesus, Herod is out to get you. I wonder what the tone there is. Uh, is it, go away, Herod's after you? I think that's what they're saying. And Jesus replies, Go tell that fox I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. On the third day, I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you know what? Herod isn't the threat. You, you've come to me to say that Herod's out to get me. That's not who I'm concerned with. 
Jesus knows he'll go to Jerusalem, that he'll get to Jerusalem, and even the king can't stop him from what he's going there to do. And he knows that when he gets there, they're going to kill him. But it's not Herod who's going to do that. It's going to be not the political powers who kill him as much as the people and the religious leaders are going to put him to death. The same people who have killed God's messengers in the past will also kill the Son of God when he reaches Jerusalem. The place where the kingdom of God should be established, where his people should receive him, instead will be the ultimate place of rejection for this king. And if they don't receive him there, well, where will he be received? Will only a few be saved? So Jesus speaks of the celebration that's coming, but he doesn't celebrate this exclusion. He longs to save those who reject him but they wouldn't accept him. And they won't see him until the end, at which point it will be too late. What keeps people out, according to verse 34? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. Their deliberate refusal to enter, to receive Jesus, to receive the love of Jesus as he longs to gather them in, to believe in Jesus. Verse 35, look, your house has left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not a reference to something that will happen three days later or a week later, it's looking to the future when Jesus returns, when all will see him for who he is. Jerusalem curses him. One day all will call him blessed. That's what Jesus holds out. It's a promise, it's a threat, it's a danger, it's a hope, it's death, it's life. How are we responding? So let me just quickly ask as we wrap things up. So who are you in the story? Well, you're not Jesus. You're not the owner of the house. You're not Herod. Are you Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or are you one who comes from east and west and north and south? Well, maybe that's who you are. The Pharisees set the standard. They would have known how they were going to get in. They would have been confident. On what basis do you think you can get in? Jesus is days from Jerusalem. He's going to die there. This is not a Disney movie with a feel-good ending. It's a story of kingdoms, and to be in one is to be excluded from the other. Jesus' kingdom is brought about by his death. He's been trying to get people to listen to him by telling them that they, too, need to embrace death. It also isn't really, then, a self-help gospel. It isn't going to make your troubles away. In fact, if you're anything like Jesus and most Christians throughout the ages, it's going to multiply your troubles if you identify with Jesus as Lord. So why would you join in? It appears that only a few will be saved. But people will come from all directions. Why? Because they recognize with Jesus that there are bigger problems than the challenges of today. There is a God who is going to close the door. There is a God who won't tolerate sin at the banquet. 
and yet he has washed away that sin by the blood of his son. And they want to get in before that door closes and live out their future in relationship with him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for answering those questions. How do you get in and who is getting in? In reading this and thinking about this, we're confronted with that question, am I getting in? And so we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that your word would work its way into our heart, that you would increase our understanding. But we pray with real desperation that you would build faith into us, that you would make us fit for this kingdom. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, brothers,